Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name is Ed Mann and today we're very lucky to be joined, actually the creator of the platform we're using to actually record this show today, Josh Nielsen. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Glad to be here. Creator of Zencaster, I should say. That's something we've been talking about a lot for the last couple of episodes, how much we, the transition away from using like Audio Hijack Pro to finally going over to Zencaster and how much we've been enjoying it. So first, th- you know, first things first is thank you for making such a great product. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm uh, definitely glad you're finding it useful. I mean, as 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 we saw, just trying to get this uh, recording scheduled, there's already enough problems and things in the way of like recording your show, and uh, you know, getting the technical stuff sorted is uh, what I'm trying to aiming to do at least. Oh, we are doing a great job about it, man. And yeah, I mean, the, the first question I always like to start off on these shows is kind of like, how did you get into programming? I think it's always interesting to know, like, you know, what what, what drew you to it. You know, I was actually thinking about this the other day because my brothers. I've got brothers who are quite a bit older than me, like maybe 10 or 15 years. And they were all into programming when I was growing up. But And so there was computers around. But I always thought what they were doing was really boring. And I was just interested in playing video games. And I never picked up on any of it. I mean, aside from like... I don't know, setting key bindings in Quake. Like I did a, there was a little bit of like, you know, making key combo, whatever. But um, eventually what kind of dragged me back into it was I was in university and I was planning on becoming a mechanical engineer. I'd done drafting all through high school. That was my path. That's what I was doing. And I ended up at a school that didn't have an engineering program. And just for the summer. I went to school in Hawaii for a little while and I was like, well, while I'm out here, I'll just take some elective classes. And I saw one for like website making and I was like, oh, cool. I'll, I can make a website. I th- or I'd like to, I didn't even know what it was about. And it was basically just HTML and CSS. And then you learn at the end how to make a PHP form. Yeah. That kind of got the wheels turning and I was like, oh, this is great. I'll, I can't wait to take the next class. And they're like, what next class? That's the, that is the web class. That is like the programming class. Like, <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. what you're getting. You get a taster and you're done. And I was like, oh, really? But then the the school that I was at was quite small. And so I talked to them and they actually made a new class to follow up that one so that I could keep going with the studying. And um, yeah, shortly thereafter, I, f- I, I found out that they were hiring for the, they called it the webmaster at the time. Sounds so cool, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, we need to bring that back. Uh, <laughs> but it was the webmaster for one of the schools at the university. And I was like, well, I can make websites. And so I applied for the job. And the funny thing was, like, at, at, at universities, people come and go so quickly that nobody knows. Like, you could get hired for a job by someone who doesn't even know what the job is. Like, that's basically what happened. I was completely unqualified the person who hired me didn't know that I didn't, I was so unqualified that I didn't know I was unqualified. And so I can make an HTML website and they hired me to like run this uh, massive, like multi-site Drupal installation that they had going on. And I still remember just the moment when I realized just how clueless I was, is I was reading some documentation and it was referring to like printing a variable. And I remember looking for, I was like, well, I don't really have a printer hooked up. 
So I'm going to have to get a printer. Like that's, that's where I was when I started this job, but I quickly realized that I didn't know what I needed to know. And I got them to buy me a couple books and that was kind of, that was my intro to programming. So it's funny that you look back at these stories now, but obviously you know, when you're then you need that entryway in. And it's nice that you actually were able to through luck and, you know, however it happened, like to get the entryway in to actually get the job and get the time to be able to learn these type of things. Because you'd never put yourself through it intentionally. If I had known ahead of time what it would, what was required to to do that job, I never would have even applied. That's it, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You just go down the rabbit hole, realizing, oh man. Yeah. So you kind of have to delude yourself into it. I think. Same with business. Following on from that, then. So where are you currently based, then? Uh, we're currently in Utah because we've. My mom lives here, and we had a kid recently, and we wanted her to be able to spend some time, some time with our kid. But um, Zencaster was built over the last couple, two, over two years, I guess, in Australia, the U.S., New Zealand, and Thailand, and I guess sometimes Malaysia. So we've been moving around a lot during the process. Yeah, that's. So you've had, I suppose, a remote setup throughout all this time, just working on the product. Yeah, I mean, I, we were in Thailand in the same place for about nine months of that time. So I kind of got like a, you know, found what I could and kind of got set up. But yeah, I, I, I did learn that I'm not a, I'm not a digital nomad, as they call them. It's too much stress. Like every time you got to pick up and go and take your things and visa runs and especially with a kid. I do enjoy, you know, spending time in other other cultures and places, but. I, in the future, I'll probably just pick one at a time and uh, go and stay for a while. So, so like Zencaster perspective, how did that come to being then? Like what was, because I'm guessing then you're an avid podcast fan and um, do, do, do you release your own podcasts? Uh, you know, here's my dirty secret is that I kind of fell, like stumbled backwards into this whole thing. I'm, I have listened to podcasts for a long time, but it was never something where I was like, this is what I'm going to get into. It was just kind of like, I enjoyed the content. I had been working on a previous company with a couple of friends of mine called soundkeep.com. And it was a, an app, a web app that was supposed to be kind of like a GitHub for music to help, uh, like electronic musicians in particular collaborate and create music online. Um, totally didn't work out at all, but it, you know, it got me kind of learning more about the audio side meets the web and how all that works. And at the same time, like the web audio API was was maturing and then the web RTC came out so you can access the microphone and things like that. And while I was working on that, someone said to me, I don't know about what you're doing now, but I know podcasters have a problem. He didn't say recording, but he said kind of like gathering their audio and getting it ready to publish and this and that. And I didn't really think twice about it until that first company had kind of dissolved and I was looking for something else and, and found out I was having a kid. And so I was like, okay, what's my, you know, what's my quickest path to getting some money in the door and and making a business. And I thought, well, that guy said something about podcasting. So let me interview some podcasters. So I started talking to some people that I knew and sure enough, there was a pretty obvious problem and it seemed like. I was just at the perfect point in time where, you know, the problem existed. Podcasting was, I mean, had been going for a long time, but it was starting to heat up and the web, the web browsers now gave you this new uh, functionality that, you know, I saw that there was potential to build something that really saved a lot of time. You know, me being delusional again, I thought, oh, I could probably build a quick 
you know, an alpha ready for testing in like a month or something. And that didn't happen. It took a lot longer than that, but yeah. So that, did that answer the question? I'm rambling now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's really interesting. I think, again, it's that whole, I think being delusioned a little bit though is a great thing because again, maybe if you look at realize the investment in time, obviously I know, you know, it's been successful now, um, but you know, obviously at the beginning, like you don't know how it's going to be. And if you're investing all this time up front just for it to either flop or, you know, not get what you want out of it. So, so you've never, so have you ever done your own podcasting before? Was it, so it is just the fact that you've you've, you found a problem that other people were having. You, you were listening to podcasts yourself and you wanted to, you thought that that would be a good niche, obviously with the product that you were working on previously. Yeah. I mean, I had never recorded a single podcast episode before I built uh, Zencaster. So <laughs> now I have, my bigger problem now is that it takes so much time. It's not just the recording part. There's so much more to it that I've been so busy building Zencaster that I haven't released any of the stuff I've recorded. So that's one of the things I'm working on now that I've gotten to profitability is going back and getting the the old episodes ready and actually releasing and doing more on the marketing side. And from like the idea that you had then to this initial alpha, like kind of what were you know obviously with web artists like what was your thinking behind it did you always have an envision you know envision in you know in your mind that you were going to use that these these technologies or was it mainly just exploring like how could this be done did you already kind of already know how it would be possible or was it very much a learning curve from the beginning you know from i only interviewed maybe three or four podcasters and these were just friends of mine so i didn't do like a comprehensive exhaustive survey or anything but just from those few people, I got pretty much the same input as here's what the problem is. Here's why it's a problem. You know, basically, I have a friend who had a pod. He still does. He still does his podcast weekly. And he was saying, it's fine for me and my co-host, but when I have one-off guests, I can't train them on how to use Audacity or whatever it is, the tool that you want to record with and then export the audio and then send it over. It's just too much to ask. And he said, and the audio quality is so bad when they were using Skype that they were basically just, you know, making decisions each week. Like, should we even have a guest? It's going to be so much trouble. I'm going to have to, you know, so they were actually not having guests on their show just because of the hassle of it all. And in order to get the good quality, it was going to be too much trouble. And so uh, for those who aren't familiar with how this works, if you record through if you recorded a podcast where you're just on Skype, you sound great, but the person on Skype sounds like they recorded through Skype. Whereas if you record each person locally on their own end, then it sounds really good and you can merge those together later. So what people were doing is they're having both people open Audacity, hit record at the same time, and then they would merge those together later. Um, which worked okay. But again, as I said, if you have a one-off guest, it's hard to get them to, to do that all properly. So just the, just the simple process of being able to just send a link and not having to worry about anything else, like, you know, apparently took enough friction out of the process that, uh, yeah, it's attractive enough for people to pay for it. So no, it definitely is. I am definitely one of those. And like, you, it must've been a great achievement getting to version one, like being able to like actually ship version one. Well, again, when I started building this, it actually wasn't possible. And I didn't know that given like the current set of tools in the browsers and their capabilities, it became possible as I was building it. And so it kind of was a good thing that it took me a little bit of time to get it all working because it gave the whole ecosystem a bit, a bit of time to mature up, but 
I did, yeah, it was another one of those things where I didn't know it. I didn't know at the time and it ended up working out just because I got lucky, but, uh, and you know, obviously many thanks to the browser vendors. They've, they've done a great job in uh, really pushing forward the capabilities in the past few years. When was Zencaster created your initial, I suppose your initial gem of an gem of idea and then actually released to the public for an alpha? I think that I started working on it at the end of 2014, November-ish probably. And then I, I released the, the beta, um, the open beta in like May, end of May the next year. So it took me a good, what, six or seven months to actually have something that I could tell people, hey, try and use this. And then was that like hacking on it all day, every day? Or did you have to have like a job with that to balance it out? Or Well, I mean, that was one of the things that kind of slowed me down was I didn't... Well, actually, when I started working on it, I was like, I'm just going to bang this out real fast and I'll see how it works out. And then if I need to get a job or whatever, obviously it took way longer than that. So after about two or three months of working on it just by itself and realizing what I'd got myself into, um, I then took a job... Uh, working just part-time. So I was working 20 or 30 hours a week doing contract work. And then the rest of the time I spent working on Zencaster. And I did that for, let's see, almost probably a year and a half while I worked on Zencaster on the side and did some traveling. I mean, in, in the middle of all this, I got married. I had a kid. I, I was moving to, moved to New Zealand to spend time with my wife's family. That's where her family's from. And so there was a lot of kind of little distractions and things that, um, you know, so I wasn't just like, you know, pedal to the curb the whole time, but you know, I was, you know, it, it pretty much dominated my, my life, you know? <laughs> but then as you say, though, I mean, the fact that the time frame worked really well for you because then, you know, the browser support caught up to what you wanted. Uh, so yeah, it worked out really well. And, and, and as I the, the geek in me actually is very interested to know kind of, you know, like we've heard of WebRTC and all these things, but maybe for the audience, it'd be great, you know, to kind of go into kind of so, so some of the actual hooks into the browser that you you take advantage of. And, you know, the, the capabilities of being able to do VoIP and recordings and all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So uh, the initial, I, I don't know how long you've been using Zencaster, but the initial version of Zencaster actually didn't, well, let me, let me step back. To answer your question, WebRTC stands for Web Real-Time Communication. And basically, it's an API in the browser that lets you... The the end res, the, the, the master idea behind it is that you can connect in a peer-to-peer -peer connection with someone else on the web without a central server uh, in between the two. And then you can connect in like a VoIP, VoIP channels with them, or you can use, connect in data channels, things like that. But beyond all that, you, it gave you an API because if you're going to talk in VoIP with someone, you need to have access to the microphone. So it gave you microphone access. And the, the initial version of Zencaster didn't do any VoIP or data communication or anything like that. It just popped up when someone clicked on the link. It opened you up into the Zencaster page and then uh, it just recorded. You couldn't hear them through Zencaster. So you needed to still use Skype or Hangouts or a telephone or whatever you wanted to actually talk in real time. You know, that worked for quite a while. And because nothing else really existed at the time, you know, that was fine. Once once I had more time, I went in and, and got the VoIP working and all that as well. And um, so that's that's where it is now. But yeah, it's kind of gone through an evolution as far as... 
And because the the VoIP stuff is is even still kind of being tuned up, and the APIs are changing, so yeah, that was kind of my bridge to get it in and get it working while the VoIP stuff was still shaping up. And then once that was ready, I plugged that in as well. Yeah, because I can imagine because you, you're almost on the bleeding edge of all these APIs, you must have been dealing with a lot of changes. Yeah, yeah within these browsers. Yeah, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. The browser vendors have been pretty good about marking things as deprecated and giving time, but there have been some surprises and it's definitely kept me on my toes. Plenty of reading the change logs and all that kind of fun stuff with the browser releases and thinking, oh no, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. It's funny because if I would have waited maybe six months before I started working on Zencaster, it probably would have saved me like six months of development time. Because just after I had like built all this like my own custom solution and all the gotten all this stuff working through tons of like trial and error, then all these open source libraries started popping up by like super genius people that were basically solved all the problems that I had been wrestling with and I could have just like waited and like plugged in their library. But yeah, uh, you know, that's how it goes, I guess. It wouldn't have been as fun, you know, the hard slog to the reward at the end. <laughs> right. And I I probably understand it better now after having had to go through that but yeah it, it was a little bit of a i don't know bittersweet when i saw that but since then i've actually incorporated some of those libraries that did it better than me in in some cases not in all but yeah because i was going to ask actually so you've got like a couple of bits to it so you've got you know the, the initial thing is actually hooking into using the, the the microphone itself and then now you've got the the fact that you can do voip and with voip then do you uh, you know does the browser provide the voip, ca- VoIP capabilities like part of the apis to that or do you have to kind of encode the audio yourself and transfer that down the wire and all that kind of stuff no it, it handles a lot of that for you there is a little bit of a weird kind of there's some like pretty deep technical stuff that goes into like making the the handshake that kind of connects you in a peer to peer connection with someone else, um, which I just use a, a library to do that for me. But uh, once you get past that, it's pretty simple. You you call a function to get access to the audio stream. Once you get access to that audio stream, you can then basically send that to the peers in your connection and then they do the same and now you're talking and yeah it, it's actually not too complicated there's in fact there's kind of like a open source kind of light version of what Zencaster does I think it's called roll call and so if you're interested in actually seeing kind of a bare bones kind of example of how something like this might work and come together check that out yeah no definitely and, and then and obviously the other part of it is the recording aspect I suppose, do they provide in a similar manner to how the VoIP stuff works, you know, that kind of the APIs for that? Or do you have to encode them yourself, you know, store it in WAV and then encoding it into MP3 yourself? Yeah, the the tricky part is that it basically just gives you the audio in PCM format, which is essentially a WAV file without the headers. So it's just arrays of float32 numbers, basically. And so in order to make that useful for get you know for the podcaster you know you have to figure out how to convert how to write the headers properly to get that into a wave format but even before zencaster even though it records to essentially wave format i didn't support wave recording for a long time because it's it takes so long to upload one it's quite simple to build something that duplicates what zencaster does under ideal conditions the hard part is making it fault tolerant and handle disconnections and dealing with, I mean, anything under the sun can happen. Like I get emails, they're like, 
my cat tripped over the cord. My computer turned off while the recording was happening. It was two hours in. Said, Can you get my audio back? It please? was my. It was yeah. my, my. It was like my number one life hero that I was interviewing. You know, stuff like that. So. I've had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what are all the things that can go wrong and how can I protect against that. So one of the things I did early on was I made it so that as you're recording, it actually on the fly transcodes the audio into MP3 format. And then every 30 seconds, it takes that MP3, which is now small enough to actually be uploaded as you're recording. And it uploads that to your Dropbox account. So even if lightning strikes or whatever you'll have up to like the last 30 seconds of what you've been saying backed up or whatever so that's been a huge help but it was pretty challenging to figure out how to tie all that together and if i should even do it that way uh, luckily i found someone who had done like a port of the lame mp3 encoder to javascript and so that's what i'm using for the uh the transcoding there that must be a huge project. Was that is that like the was it the C plus plus kind of byte compiler to JavaScript? I think yeah, they, they used like one of those WebAssembly or something like that to transcompile it, and so it's pretty it's super dense. I've never even attempted to like touch anything in there, um, but it just kind of works. So. <laughs> That's another great thing. Like when you want to build a product, you've got a lot of areas to think of and it's really applying where is your value? You know, is it, is it working in this kind of really, as you say, dense kind of technical things like that? Or can I just get a, a package that already does that and just slot it in? And then, you know, if I ever did need to deal with that, I could go in. But, you know, at the moment, as you say, it's working fine. So yeah, I definitely had to, you're figuring out which corners to cut, I guess, is kind of one of the tricky parts of building something like this, just because it's so... It's a pretty ambitious project for one person, and it took. That's why it took me so long. But even with cutting the corners that I did, it took a while. But I'll, I'll just give you an example of some of the things that I did do to kind of try and save my time and focus on the solution that I was making, and not a bunch of other things. It, one, of the, one of the big ones was using Dropbox instead of uh, rolling my own whatever uh, Amazon S3 solution or whatever, because Dropbox came out of the box with this easy way to do resumable uploads and what that means to me is that you could easily say a streamable upload and so it basically just let me send the the file in a little bit of a piece at a time and build it up over time and then when it's ready you just say okay now you've got the file and it pops up in your in your thing so that's something that doesn't happen easily out of the box with amazon and in, and especially i went almost two years without charging for the product so it kept me from having to pay for people's audio storage Another corner that I kind of cut was I actually use a third-party service to do the post-productions, which basically just mixes the audio together and adds some audio enhancements. I use a service called Auphonic. And yeah, it just saved me from having to deal with... I was like, yeah, I could write an FFmpeg script that mixes these together. But, you know, this other one, they they have all those other kind of features like... They do actually some really interesting like audio analysis before they do their enhancements. So it does actually sound really good aside from just mixing them together. You can tag it with like MP3 tags. Like they transcriptions can happen out of the box, which is something that I'm trying to add to Zencaster soon. So it just saved me. It, it came with a lot of features, saved me a lot of time. I didn't have to worry about it. And I've been pretty happy with that. 
yeah, it is. It's finding out where the value is and finding out where you can cut corners and where, you know, things like that. And you're building a product in, in its entirety. You're not just building the fact that you want to do audio production filtering at the end. You're trying to make it so you can record, you can deal with the fault tolerance. That's that's really where you're at, you know, yeah. where you want to make it easier for people to do. And Another one of the things that I had planned on building before when I started Zencaster was some simple like audio editing tools and things like that into the browser as well, because I'd already been sort of building some stuff like that, but it came to where it was time to start building something like that. And I was like, you know, not a single person has asked me for this. I mean, I think it had come up once or twice, but it's definitely not like the top of any everybody's mind. And um, I was like, they already have audacity or whatever their tool is that they want to use. And yeah, so I've held off on that. And I think what I've actually found is there, there's some other services that do some things like that. But I actually get people coming to me and say, I really like Zencaster because it just solves the real problem that I had and then lets me use my other tools for everything else that I'm already happy with. And I wasn't really expecting that. I was, I think I kind of thought like more is better, but you do kind of turn people away when they come to your website and it's like, I do a million things and, and they're like, well, I don't, that's not my problem. I've got one problem. Can you solve it? And can you solve it well? And you know, if you're focusing on that one problem to solve, you've got far less scope to worry about and you can just deal with that one thing. And even if I did decide to offer some of those things in the future, which I may, the marketing on the website would probably stay pretty similar to as it is now to where it's like, here's your problem. Here's my solution. And then later on, I might say, oh, by the way, I can do some of this other stuff for you as well. But I want to really focus on the problem. Really interested, actually, to know, like, kind of, you know, like JavaScript and things like that. So I'm assuming, you know, obviously with the browser APIs and stuff, using a lot of JavaScript, front-end JavaScript, and then you mentioned, you know, the lame uh, JavaScript implementation. How do you roll your JavaScript? Are you using frameworks? Are you using your own thing? Or what, what kind of thing are you doing there? Well, you know, the state of the art has actually changed a lot since I started, and I'm feeling a little bit inadequate these days, but because everybody's in React land nowadays. But um, I use Backbone.js as the kind of the core framework for the to keep things organized on the front end. I'm trying to think. I do, you know, I use a whole host of kind of other little handy libraries and things, but that's kind of yeah the core of what it's all built on. And I don't have like a complex like I mean I use uh you know Gulp. To do, to bundle the you know the assets together for de- deployment and production and things like that, but I'm actually pretty low tech as far as all that goes. I just have one server. I don't even have, I don't have a load. You know, it hasn't been an issue yet. I don't have a load balancer, multiple servers, or anything like that. Um, yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's by far the most complicated part of the app is is in the front end, and then. The back end basically just delivers the app. It has a WebSocket server that handles some communication between the peers for like when you want to do a chat or when you hit record and things like that. And then the back end also handles, you know, when you want to do a post production, it's got a job queue that kind of handles all that and sends it to the um, the third party. I think, yeah, the great thing about your, your product is that, yeah, you send it over to the person and obviously it's their, their web browser that's dealing with a majority of the load for you, um, which is quite a nice thing. And obviously then, you know, dealing with Dropbox and allowing Dropbox to handle that is another great win for you. Yeah, I mean, my server rarely is is usually in like the CPU is like 5% usage is high. It it runs pretty low on CPU because very few of of the kind of working part of the application or very little of the working part of the application touches the back end. You say you've got one server, like how, how, where do you host your server? And like, is it a dedicated server? Is it a VPS? 
Yeah, I've got a VPS with DigitalOcean, and they actually, I don't know what happened. I think they set me up on some startup credits, or I went through i went through Techstars uh, as a, like a programmer in residence with, with DigitalOcean, with the DigitalOcean guys, so I think they might have set me up on some, like, crazy great startup credit plan because i still haven't paid them any money but <laughs> that's awesome I might, I might have to shoot them an email <laughs> yeah so i just have a, a, a regular vps it's, i think it runs like whatever fedora 20 something or whatever the latest one is and as far as the, the on the code side it's node.js uh i use a lot of a library called koa.js as kind of the back-end framework which I don't know. I, I I think I got into it at the wrong time. I'm about to have to go through and make it. JavaScript is changing so much right now that you're in this situation where like you'll be building with a library and suddenly they'll be like, oh, we're moving everything to using ES6 async await. And you're like, oh, I mean, that's really cool. But yeah, what about me? What about, how do I migrate? And then you're in this weird situation where like some of the libraries support the new version and some don't. So yeah, I might have been smarter to stick with something more popular like Express at the time, but it's been more fun. Koa relied on using uh, generators and yield to kind of handle control flow without doing callbacks. And so it was it was attractive at the time. And it still is with async away. It's, it'll be basically the same. I just have to go through and replace a bunch of you know much of the boilerplate code the logic the, the idea is philosophy is still the same it's just the syntax used now right you can almost do like of like if you had the a lot of confidence in this you could almost do like a find and replace and like and then push to, to push live without even <laughs> yeah. checking now that's the risk now that's russian roulette <laughs> but it doesn't make me nervous so well, how would you test because uh, that's another interesting thing you know you obviously do a lot of manual testing i'm guessing but is there any like automated tests to handle like these apis and all the different versions and stuff like that with the browsers yeah i mean that's definitely been a challenge um so far like manual testing is kind of remains king uh i do have automated tests that do kind of like selenium type i use browser stack in a, a library called nightwatch that makes it easy to write Selenium drivers and then send them to be ran remotely on different computers. And so I have some some of those that I use. And then um, now that I've kind of gotten past the point where you know I've got some money to put into this, I, I've you know I've hired a guy to start working on this. And now everything we're going back and increasing our test coverage. And anything new that we write is gonna is is gonna be tested as well as possible. The hard part is is Backbone JS doesn't lend itself nearly as well to retroactive testability as something like React would. And so, I, you know, I am in a bit of a situation where it's like, I really want to test this part of the code, but it means I have to like rewrite this part of the code because I wasn't thinking about that at the time. And so it's a little bit of an uphill slog to get it, to get everything just right. And of course, I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone that had perfect 100% co- test coverage but that's the goal i guess mm, and it's just it's working it's working again the valuable parts of making sure that they work um because you know they're the, they're the bits that you actually care about you know that if they don't if, if things start not working there you know that you're going to lose money or customers and things like that right exactly the places where i'm starting with all the i mean the one of the first things i wrote tests for was like the indexed db save functionality that actually stores the audio into the browser and that and 
um, just because that's a really critical piece. Yeah, that, yeah. If that started breaking, then you would <laughs> you would find out very quickly that people right. wouldn't be too happy. Right. So yeah, the hard part is is like a lot of this stuff is not super easy to test. When you, I, I recently built something with React and Redux, and then in in that ecosystem, the idea of keeping all your functions pure so that they can be easily testable is pretty smart. I didn't have that philosophy going into buildings in Caster. And it's really hard to write tests to test something that has a bunch of side effects that also need to be tested for. Especially if it's hitting the DOM and it's really hitting web APIs and it's exactly yeah. if, it, if it's got and that's the other thing is if it uses the DOM APIs then you can't just run like a back a test from the command line that's it a quick speedy test it's you got to like slow slog. you got to run up you got to like spin up a headless server or browser headless browser or use a service and yeah so that's definitely one of the big, the big challenges moving forward is figuring out how to get this stuff tested i'd love to get into a more of a continuous deploy type of situation with zencaster it's just not there yet i mean right now i write the code i test it and then i basically just log into my server and do a git pull and run a bundle and then that that deploys the code but yeah if yeah i'd love to have a more a high-tech solution to that with running it through one of the continuous integration services. But those don't really help if you don't have good tests. So, You know, when you first started and you're building up this product, you don't even know if it's going to be around in a month's time. So it's, you know, it's that whole thing of getting a product, an MVP out there. And now that you say, you, you know, you're making, you know, you, you do, you've got some success out of it now. This is the time you can go back and actually kind of look at these things. Yeah, it's really easy to lament things that you wish you would have planned for ahead of time. But one of the big mistakes that I think we made with Soundkeep, the the previous company, was I think we focused a little too much on building for scale and uh, handling things in a scalable manner before it mattered at all. And it turned out that it never mattered. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the fail well thing, isn't it? The Twitter thing. Everyone wants to, you know, you want to get to that stage when things are actually failing on you because it means people want to use your service. Right, right, exactly. So we spent a lot of time in the first company like trying to figure out how to like stream audio through the server without having our buffer it all onto the server to keep our memory low on the server and this and that and then i think we got a total of like 40 signups total for that app so nobody it never mattered at all uh, this time around i basically said don't i'm not going to worry about that stuff i'm just going to get it working somehow and then i'll worry about the rest later and for better or worse that's where i'm at that's it, and see if there's demand, and if and, and there is demand, now you've got the time. You say you've so you've employed someone, have you, to work full time with you on Zencaster? Yeah, yeah, I got it. There was a guy that uh, reached out who was actually in kind of a similar situation as as I was. He was working on his own company, uh, hadn't gotten it off the ground yet. His was based around um, doing education tutorial tutorials through. Um, using WebRTC, he, he was basically using WebRTC and some of the same stuff I was using, but for a different application. And he's still working on his app, but he said he was looking for some good, you know, work on the side. And so I was like, yeah, come help me out. Uh, how do you collaborate? Is it like a GitHub project repos that you use or, cause I suppose this is now actually collaborating with someone on the project. It must be a dip, maybe a different workflow. Yeah. You know, that has been a bit of a transition because another thing that I wasn't very good at was commenting on my, my code and so it's been a little bit of a, a headache to get someone else up to speed because it's a kind of a, be a behemoth at the moment especially on the front end and 
but yeah, we use GitHub for just like pull requests and things like that. And then Slack to communicate. And uh, so another thing, actually, so how do you like uh, persist the data like on your server side? Do you use like a relational database like MySQL or do you roll out your own like a NoSQL solution? Mm, yeah, this is another mistake I made. Uh, well, I don't you, know about a mistake. Mongo. <laughs> I, I went with Mongo, <laughs> <laughs> which, as everybody says, it's super easy to just prototype with because you don't have to like, you know. Worry about your schemas. Yeah, and... <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything, really. I do use a library called Mongoose that at least keeps you from just saving like arbitrary data into your objects. But yeah, I mean, I'm not using it as you should use a document store. I have to do my own joins and things like that. So it really, that may be one thing that if I went back in time, I might actually decide not to cut that corner. Um, just cause I know it's going to be a headache moving forward. Uh, I, I, but you know, nowadays I might try and use something like rethink DB, which wasn't as mature of an option back then. So yeah, nowadays I'd either use rethink or Postgres. And like, so, so you mentioned that, you know, you use a lot of like queuing and stuff for these external, you know, these PI calls to, to for the audio processing. Uh, what, what kind of workers do you use or through queuing mechanism? So I actually just use a library called q.js uh, it's K-U-E. And yeah, it's kind of, it's written for Node, you know, because you can kind of get these these queuing servers that are kind of run independently and you just kind of communicate with them. I don't know if it was the best choice or not. We've definitely had some problems with it getting jammed up and trying to figure out what's going on with it. But it's definitely an improvement for probably the first year and a half of Zencaster's use. I didn't even have a queuing server. I just prayed that when it was in beta, I just prayed that when I sent off an email or a post-production that like the request would get through and that it would work, which obviously it actually worked pretty well most of the time, but you had those few instances. Get the, where, that's tr- yeah. When it gets to scale, then you're yeah. going to get these odd, odd use cases. Yeah. So then I had, I, so I built in the queuing server before I moved to the paid plans to make sure I was being a little bit more responsible with, with everything. And yeah, it, you know, it's nice. The, the one I'm using has like a web interface so I can log in and I can see like what jobs are pending or active or, you know, what's the state of things. Um, so that's been pretty nice, but uh, I don't swear by this queuing server yet. I suppose you've got maybe a, a massive list of things that you want to prioritize to work out what's next on the, you know, the agenda for you, kind of if, whether it's refactoring something or, you know, rethinking like what you want to do, you know, rethink DB or something like that. One thing with the with the queuing actually though, so I'm guessing I suppose your footprint, like the processing footprint, isn't too bad because you're not having to use something like FFmpeg, and you just so do you just send off the audio or just the links to the Dropbox links to the external service that then they do the processing and then put it back into Dropbox, or do you have to kind of handle the transfer between those two? Yeah, so the way it works is when you record, it streams the audio, the tracks to Dropbox. When you initiate a post production. I just send the links to those tracks to the post-production service. They download those directly from Dropbox. There isn't an easy way for me to put them back in the Dropbox account that same way. So at that point, I then do download the audio to my server from the post-production service and then upload it back to the Dropbox account just because my server has access to the Dropbox accounts. 
I suppose these audio processing people, you know, system that you use, like, are you kind of, is that something that they do typically or where you just, you talk to them and say, look, I'm looking at setting this up. Would you be up for, you know, helping out? Um, they have built a few features for me. That wasn't one of them though. So yeah, they already had this functionality where you could either upload the audio or you could just give them a link to download it from wherever. So um yeah that was actually what are the couple of the features that they've actually had to create for you then man that's a good question one of them which i feel bad about this because i still haven't used it yet even though i mean i'm planning on it they i asked them about it and they like built banged it out over a weekend or something and i was like oh okay <laughs> i didn't well. expect it to be here that quick <laughs> um was the ability to like stagger the tracks that are being mixed initially originally with their service if you wanted to mix two tracks you'd send them the two tracks and then they would just start them both at the beginning and mix them uh i get into situations with zencaster where let's say someone is recording like let's say you and i are recording and like my internet drops out and i can't hear you anymore and i hit refresh well that cuts the track into two pieces now and so i needed a way in the post-production service to be able to say, mix these tracks together, start this one at zero, start this one at five minutes, you know, and do some kind of fine tuning there. They've done some other things for me too. That I can't recall off the top of my head, but I've been really happy with their, uh, their service and their response and support and everything. I suppose another thing, actually an interesting one is, is the whole idea of like, kind of, you know, obviously I've recorded my end, you're recording your end and we may get like some audio drift. And I suppose, mm. is that something in post-production that they handle, or is this something that you kind of keep an eye on in the browser itself? You know, that, strangely, that still can be a problem at times, but it's never been as big of a problem as I thought it would be. But yeah, that's definitely something that's hard to fix after the fact. Generally, what causes drift, I mean, at a basic level, it can happen just if you've got two sound cards that have clocks that are slightly off. And the, so their sampling rates might not be dead on. And then when you play them back together, they can drift a little bit. It doesn't happen that often, to be honest. A, a bigger cause of this that I've seen more often is maybe someone's recording on a really old computer. Like I've had people use, like come to me with drift issues and then I find out they're, they're, they've been recording with like Windows Vista. As much as I would love to support every platform ever, it's just... JavaScript just runs too slow. Uh, even so, for Windows, the minimum I recommend is Windows 8. And then Macs usually do a pretty good job of staying up to date, so I don't worry about that too much. But I've had issues where people have not that their Mac is software out of date, but maybe their Mac is like seven years old or something like that. And then you can run into issues just because the computer is not keeping up. And, and so it can actually start to drop samples. Um, but that's pretty rare. It doesn't happen too often. Are there any new features that you've got in the pipeline that you can maybe kind of, you know, any ideas, any kind of, or is it all kept under wraps until the final, uh, the final launch? <laughs> no, you know, I'm horrible at secrecy. I, I feel like it's too difficult to remember what, like every time I talk to like every once in a while, I've got like my brother, he's a big kind of business guy and a few other people. And sometimes I'll run like, Hey, here's a press release I was thinking about sending out or this and that. And they'll be like, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> and like rewrite the whole thing and totally change. And I'm like, uh, it's totally better. Like I get why they're doing it, but it's just, too much. I got too much other stuff to worry about to try and keep sorted in my head of like, what am I keeping a secret and what am I supposed to spin in what way? So I've decided to just kind of be pretty open about it. 
Um, but to answer your question, honestly, right now, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that it, I, I could do and probably will do. There's so many other um, problems in the podcasting space aside from just the recording part that where I could save time for people. But honestly, right now, I'm very focused on polishing what I have, fixing any bugs that exist, getting the thing really, really well tested, and just ha- building a really good foundation that I haven't had the time and ability to do up until now. Um, just fixing a lot of the technical debt that I've accrued over the time. But I am going to be trying to sneak little features in here and there as well as I go through it. Um, one of the things that I'm working on doing right now is, and this is this actually isn't going to be that hard, I just haven't taken the time to do it, but adding transcripts into the post-production process so that the you, know, you can run the post-production and get an automated transcript out of it as well. A lot of people seem to want that. The, another thing is, as as good of a, I, I still think that using Dropbox as the store for the audio was the right choice at the time. Now it's not the right choice because you can run into some things I didn't anticipate that my users would be doing was when I should have. It seems totally reasonable, but like sharing their Zencaster account. So a lot of people will have like two or three co-hosts, and maybe one of them's out of town, and then the other one will log in and use the account. And the problem that happens in that case is that it then connects their Dropbox account to to it. And so you can end up in the situation where it's unclear which Dropbox account is connected to the app and the audio ends up going to a different place. Or like, let's say that you do a recording and then your buddy logs in and connects his Dropbox account and then you try and run a post-production. Now it's trying to grab the files from the wrong account. And so there's a lot of just little things like that that, problems that have been caused by it. Um, also people can go into their Dropbox account and move files and delete files. And instead of trying to train people around all that, I'm actually now in the process of moving away from using Dropbox as the, as the canonical store of the audio. I'll still probably offer it as a way to sync out to your cloud drive, but I'm going to be running my own. I think I'll probably use the Google, Google cloud storage, you know, have my own kind of CDN, that's serving up the audio files. And then that'll give me a good uh, foundation to start doing some other things for podcasters. Like I could potentially host audio. And another thing actually is obviously, you know, you're heavily invested in the product in the, you know, like the podcast space at the moment, but is there any other product ideas that you have, you know, you're thinking of that you would like to kind of invest some time in, or is it solely at the moment, just on Zencaster and just on the podcast space? Man, I've got too many things. None of which I think would be like business successes, but there's a lot of other things I would love to be spending my time on. Inside of like the tech sphere, I'm really fascinated by Bitcoin and like what the possibilities are with something like that or or cryptocurrencies in general. I like the idea of like private clouds. I, I don't like it that I was talking to my friend the other day. He was like, he, he's, he just came out of a pretty big success with um, an e-commerce platform that he was built and... Um, He's like, you know, what's next? What's the future of e-commerce? And, you know, we kind of had like a jam session, just kind of talk about what we thought it would be. And then I realized I wasn't thinking about what I wanted it to be. And if I I could choose, I think I would choose something to where instead of like Facebook or Amazon or any of these services, like storing my preferences and my likes and dislikes, is that I have my own private database that had all this information in it and that I could kind of hand that out to services. Like if I wanted to buy something from Amazon, maybe I would give them permission to see what my, 
music instrument preferences are to help them buy instead of them storing it. So uh, that kind of stuff is stuff that's interesting to me. I've only just thought about it. It's not something I've ever put any time or effort into. I've also been watching a ton of woodworking videos on YouTube for some reason, even though I have no tools, like I find it fascinating. So maybe one of these days I'll, I'll go low tech and start building some furniture. I don't know. I think that's great. It's all goes good to have different hobbies and, you know, kind of experiment in different areas. If if I had, if, if I had complete autonomy and didn't have to worry about making money, I would probably, if I was looking for a next like programming project that was just for fun, I'd probably start building, I'd love to build a web based, uh, clone of Ultima seven in the browser on Twitter. I wrote the, the creator of Ultima, uh, Richard Garriott, because I was like, man, I'd love to build something like that. I wonder how long it would take, like one person or a few people to to bang something like that out. And so I wrote him, and he, I wrote him a Twitter a tweet, and I said, how long would it take three people to build something like Ultima Seven? And he's like, well, it took our team of twenty one people three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so times that out. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh, maybe that's not such a great idea. <laughs> Oh man! Well, let's say thank you so much, Josh, for coming on the show. Uh, it's really interesting learning about all these things, and yeah, say like I'm, I'm a massive fan of Zencaster, and I really appreciate the product and and what you're doing in the podcast space. Well, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Awesome. All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode, and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com. Or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.